0: And welcome. I and I, I can't really welcome you. This is a bit more of a somber occasion than that, but thank you also very much for being here. I need to get that out of the way. Uh we're also having a few minor technical issues here. Uh Blog Talk Radio, for those of you who don't know, has been kind of monkeying with their setup and so forth at the moment and that uh, creates complications as people try to call in, figure out the way around the new features, and so on and so forth. So we're working on getting everybody in and lined up. Uh, I'm Robert Winfrey, I forgot to mention that. Uh, this is going to be a tribute podcast to Wes Craven, the one of the true masters of horror who passed away on Sunday. And the reason that we went... I chose the opening music that I did. I consulted with a few of my friends, and it occurred to me that Benjamin Cologne, who should be joining us shortly here, should be, don't... That's a legal disclaimer, so for those of you tuning in specifically to hear Ben, if he doesn't call in, I'm not guaranteeing it. That was the plan. That's not in stone or anything. Now... Again, we went with that song, because as it turns out, and I realized, that Ben pointed this out, and I realized it, that during the... Uh, Last year I believe You can find this in the archives On the long road to ruin uh, I hosted a two part Retrospective of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise It's a very large franchise Myself, Benjamin Cologne and Sean Comer Who I believe was also kind of planning on jumping in here When he gets some free time uh, Spent two whole episodes It was over five hours I think of total airtime. I mean we talked about those movies a lot Because there's a lot to talk about but it turns out that we completely neglected when discussing dream warriors to actually talk about the song from Dawkins, so that's why we opened with it i just i feel so silly about that that we somehow managed to miss it just uh, again one of those it should have been so obvious and yet somehow we managed to miss it uh but we're kind of, so we're all going to get here and Benj and uh benjamin colon is in queue right now i'm going to unmute him in a second uh, again, Sean will be on when he gets the chance to, assuming he does and he's not too busy because Sean's a busy guy. And we're just going to kind of talk and reminisce about Wes Craven, his career, his legacy, all that good stuff. So, uh, Ben, I noticed that you've got Skype working for you again, so let's all cheer blog talk for making an, for making a smart decision to reinstate that. How are you doing this evening?
1: Hey, how's it going? I'm doing okay. I almost didn't didn't make it on time.
0: I appreciate it. I'd hate to be here by myself for an
1: hour, <laughs> cause and, and for the record, alone man. Good. For for the record, nobody nobody's tuning in just to hear me. Let's, let's just get that <laughs> out of the way.
0: You never know. I have to cover all my bases legally. I don't need people yelling at me any more than they already do. Sure. Uh, all right. Well, let's. Uh, we're going to be retreading a little bit of ground here, but. I'm I need to ask this cuz I'm not sure I can't remember off the top of my head. You do a lot of the uh you know of the convention circuits, Comic-Cons, things of that nature. So, uh, have you ever had have you you know personally ever had the chance to meet Wes Craven at any of those events you've been to? I I can't remember off the top of my head if you've if that's been something that you've done or not or that I'm aware of. So, I'm have you ever had that opportunity?
1: Unfortunately, no. That would have been that would be really really cool. Uh that would be uh pretty pretty high up there. Um there so happens to be another chiller theater convention uh they do it th- uh, twice a year. Uh coming up this October and so far the guest list has actually been pretty lame considering it's the 25th anniversary, but I I was hoping for somebody big and I was hoping for somebody along those lines like a uh, Wes Craven or uh Clive Barker or even Robert England somebody like that. But um now nah, I haven't had the pleasure of uh being able to Meet Wes Craven. That would have been pretty cool. Um, But I guess we're here to give what amounts to Blog Talks and Radlich and Broadcasting Network's eulogy for uh, Mr. Craven.
0: Uh, Something along those lines. I try to keep these things lighter and positive as opposed to down and depressing. I actually hosted the one we did on Roddy Piper after he passed away. And uh, thankfully, again, we managed to avoid, you know, being too down in the doldrums,
1: yeah man, so a year I'm, it's been, man, it has
0: <laughs> I was talking with Sean about that the other day, like man, this year really sucks,
1: yeah, I mean it, whatever whatever you care to name that you happen to be a fan of, uh we kind of we we lost an icon or or two or maybe even three,
0: yeah, it's. It's been rough, and we've still got a few months to go, and I have a slightly more positive thought I want to share at the end uh, that kind of pertains to that, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's been a rough year, so I'm curious for you, uh, you're a creative guy. For those of you who d- don't know what Ben does, he, among other things, uh, writes, draws, self-publishes uh, a web com, uh, not a webcomic, but a comic called Soul Exodus which you can find at soulexo.com I'm getting good at integrating these plugs uh, I'll get I'll get it down one of these I'll get it smooth one of these days <laughs> uh but he does that and does a lot of other artwork uh does some you know writing as well as a creative person and as a more importantly as a big horror fan I know again you and I and Sean spent you know 5 or 6 hours talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise and the importance of Wes Craven to that franchise's success, and we talked about him at length on the Scream podcast series as well. Also on the Long Road to Ruin, more cheap plugs. So, I'm, just for you as a creative person, what you know, what are some of your favorite uh, you know kind of memories? And you know, do you, uh, do you have a particular you know uh, style or things that you think he might, he is a, you know, again, a creative entity. He was a writer, a director, a producer. He, he had his hand in a lot of different things when it came to the creative aspect. Do you think he's influenced you personally? And you know, do you have any specific examples of that?
1: Um, I'm sure as we go along, I'll probably come up with a few specific examples. Um, I, maybe more subconsciously than anything else, I'm almost, I, I, there's no way that uh Wes Craven has not influenced me uh creatively. Um I grew up on horror flicks and, and namely Nightmare on Elm Street. Um and, you know, even some of uh you know West Craven's kinda fun and entertaining uh lesser known movies throughout, you know, sprinkled in between the Elm Streets and the screams throughout the eighties and nineties. Um Me personally, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a horror guy. I, and Wes Craven was, uh, at his, when he was at his best, he was one of those guys that actually very much like, you know, a lot of my horror idols, like Stephen King and like Clive Barker. These, these are, uh, creative people who, uh, who tried to dig deep and tried to not just, not just. Show you things that scared you, but they were very interested in why they scared you, and what made them scary, and the psychology of that. And um, Nightmare on Elm Street, in sort of Wes Craven's own personal fears and his and his observation of other people's fears of uh, dreams and sleeping, and he managed to kind of spin that into into this this sprawling you know boogeyman tale. Um, I don't. I I've written some scary stuff before um, and and some you know maybe surrealist or you know uh some far out some farther out stuff that you know might be considered uh you know reminiscent of something you know Wes Craven might do um as far as influence yeah did i there's no way i could say he hasn't
0: uh, you mentioned Freddy Krueger, and uh, again, there have been quite a few discussions of that character in general. Uh, something that Sean brought up and that uh, was reinforced after watching, here's another pseudo-plug for you, uh, because, again, if you haven't listened to the two-part that Sean, Ben, and I did on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise on the Long Road to Ruin, please look it up. Uh, I I know the three of us had a lot of fun with that series, and... <laughs> uh, but... We reference a lot the uh, documentary called Never, a documentary called Never Sleep Again, which is a nearly four-hour uh, video documentary about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Uh, Behind-the-scenes stuff. I think it still streams on Netflix. It's still an awesome listen, uh, awesome view. And Wes talks about the creation of Freddy Krueger specifically, and what he and I mean he's wearing. Uh, For those of you who don't know what Freddy Krueger looks like, first of all, I can't help you as far as how far your head is buried under the sand, because it's Freddy Krueger, for crying out loud. But his decision to have him wear, uh, on his upper body, a long-sleeved, horizontally-striped red and green sweater was chosen very specifically, because red and green are two of the most jarring colors uh, to the human psyche when put next to each other, and vertical, I'm sorry, horizontal lines are unsettling. They distort us uh, kind of visually as opposed to vertical lines. And it's just I mean, it's a level of detail and a level of thoughtfulness put into creating something that I guess you just don't see all that much anymore. And that's one of the things that c- kind of strikes me with Wes Craven about the stuff that he's really involved with. And it's very thoughtful. It's very intelligently put together. And I'm not saying you know his stuff is again the most you know thoughtful thought provoking films ever you know committed to celluloid but he puts a lot of thought into what he does nothing he puts on screen is random or haphazard or you know put together by happenstance he makes a lot of very conscious very detail oriented decisions that go into it and it's one of the reasons he's so successful because i mean again he's willing to look at you know how can i best unsettle people visually with a guy who's, you know, going to be burned over the entirety of his face and wield a, you know, evil looking claw, but how can I, you know, still unsettle them more than just, hey, look, it's a scary looking guy. They're doing things that mess with you you almost unconsciously. And that's a degree of, you know, again, detail-oriented filmmaking that is, I mean, it's, I don't see it all that much anymore and, you know, I tend to see a fair amount of movies and it's, it's kind of lost, and I think that's a very sad thing. Now, you specifically mentioned to me that you wanted to talk about... Yeah, you. I believe you've uh, not threatened me, but you told me specifically, don't talk about Deadly Friend without you here on the show. And that's one of his earlier movies that came out in 1986. This was after A Nightmare on Elm Street, the second Hills Have Eyes movie. So I'm this, curious, this what is, was it about this one? Go
1: ahead. Yeah, th- this was actually Wes Craven's follow-up to Nightmare on Elm Street. This is the movie he made immediately after. Um, Delhi Friend, um, not, the, not the greatest movie in the world, not even necessarily the greatest follow-up movie in the world to something as good and as groundbreaking and as iconic as Nightmare on Elm Street. I remember this movie very well I don't know, have you seen it before? Have you ever seen it before?
0: I actually haven't seen this one I hadn't even heard of it until you mentioned it specifically So now I get to find it uh, Either on Netflix Or I'll start browsing my local you know, bar, eh, Dollar DVD bins And see if I can locate it
1: you But mentioned- I hadn't
0: seen it before
1: you may have better luck in the in the dollar bins. I don't I don't know off the top of my head if it's on Netflix. It's a relatively obscure movie even though it was, you know, it was Wes Craven's follow up to Nightmare on Elm Street. But basically the premise is it's it stars a actually a very young Christy Swanson and uh she is sort of the uh girl next door to this uh boy genius computer uh inventor who has developed this uh this artificial intelligence chip that he puts in this robot that basically uh basically gives autonomy to to you know this robot that he built um Christy Swanson's character actually is killed uh you know after they meet up and they kind of hit it off and um she's actually killed I, I can't remember if it's in a car accident or something like that i actually i honestly really wish i had a chance to watch it again before we did this but um you know in his grief and to you know push i guess somewhat of a frankenstein allegory um whatever uh, however much of it may exist in this case uh he actually the boy actually implants the ai chip into her brain and brings her back to life but now she's basically a she's basically an android uh more or less or you know uh, basically just a, a a human body with a computer brain and of course as these things tend to happen she goes nuts and starts killing people
0: um yeah, that's, I that's what I can't rem- artificial intelligence does. At least that's what every, you know, book or movie on the subject has taught me.
1: Sure. I I can't remember if uh, I know there's an abusive uh abusive jerk father. I can't remember if it's hers or if it's the boy's. But uh, uh
0: yeah, Wikipedia she, tells me that she achieved brain dead status after her father shoved her down the stairs.
1: Oh, is that and what that's it was? What-
0: Damn it. uh, Hey, it's the I internet, so I'm not sure how accurate it is, but that's the information I have at my disposal.
1: Sure. But, uh, yeah, he meets his demise. I think he gets roasted to a crisp in a furnace of some kind. Um, but, and here's the thing that anybody that has seen this movie, whether they know it or not, if you've seen this movie, if you don't remember anything else about it, you will remember this part. And that is the crotchety old lady across the street or next door played by Ann Ramsey from the Goonies and from Throw Mama from the Train, uh, Ma Fredi herself, uh, who I think, you know, anybody that had seen the Goonies as a kid, you know, wanted her to die in some horrible way anyway. Guilty. Um, Sure. And uh, what happens is, there's a scene in this movie where she is basically decapitated by a basketball. (laughs) Christy Swanson's character half after gaining, you know, artificial intelligence from this computer, apparently also gains superhuman terminator strength. And, uh, there's this running, you know, little subplot where the old lady is, you know, her, uh she keeps any you know football basketball frisbee or whatever that gets that, that finds their finds its way into their yard well uh Christy Swanson's character goes to retrieve it uh the old lady standing in her way uh she removes the old lady from her way uh head first it is the most hilariously you, at first, it's actually not a bad effect because you see, you see her hurl a basketball at this old lady and her head explodes like a melon, and you see every bit of it. And then the it, then the headless corpse kind of goes into these death convulsions, but it's so ridiculous and it's such a piss-poor effect that you can actually see, you know, the person underneath the headless dummy kind of moving <laughs> sideways like her hip bone is has gained sentience uh, before, you know, hitting the ground. If you watch this movie for no other reason, watch it for that. And this is Wes Craven. that was Wes Craven's follow-up to Nightmare on Elm Street. You, I couldn't make that up if I tried.
0: Oh, you couldn't. I might have to watch it, and I will now find it just for that particular sequence, if nothing else.
1: Up until that point, the movie's okay. It's, you know, it's not terrible. After after that scene, it's, you know, mostly forgettable. It actually has a pretty decent creepy ending, uh, which in some ways makes absolutely no sense, but uh, I don't want to spoil it too much. Uh, but that... That scene kind of launched that movie into obscure cult movie lore because it's you know it's it's the villain from the Goonies and she gets decapitated by a basketball you know where where else are you gonna see something like that?
0: Uh no, I you know, you've sold me on it. I'll find it now. I'll I'll make the concentrated effort to locate a a copy that I can buy. And hey, I. I'll freely admit I'll do my best to avoid nefarious means when it comes to this one, but if I have to find that particular sequence online, I will. So
1: it's on you. Yeah, you've
0: sold me on it.
1: It's on, at the very least that one scene is on YouTube. So if you're curious just about that, then not uh, as, as soon as we're done here, <laughs> I'd recommend che- I'd recommend checking out the movie. It's it's pretty good. It's not Nightmare on Elm Street good, but it's it's pretty good and it's fun. And um, you know, I guess that that can segue. You know, a lot of Wes Craven's movies, even if they, you know, even if they weren't, you know, 100% on the level of Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, you can say, at the very least, they were entertaining, they were fun. I I remember, um, I also remember another kind of overlooked Wes Craven movie is, is the People Under the Stairs. Oh, um,
0: uh, that's, now that's a creepy one. That...
1: It's creepy if you want to scare the
0: crap out of your if you want to scare the crap out of children. That's a good one.
1: It's creepy but it's also played in some parts almost like black comedy from what I remember and it's been a while it's another one that's been a while. Um my my other familiarity like my the, my my other association with that movie is that um I lived, you know, in the '90s. I lived in Florida, very close to Orlando, Florida, um, as a kid and and teenager. Uh, Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, had uh, what's called Halloween Horror Nights. They do, you know, the last week or two in October, leading up to Halloween. They they convert the entire theme park into a series of haunted houses and Halloween and creepy, scary themed rides and attractions. One of them was themed after the people under the stairs. It scared the living hell out of me. And I, you know, mind you, I'm about 12 or 13 at the time. It was, it, it's one of the creepier haunted houses I've ever been to. So that's, that's, a, that's also my association with, with that. I, I, I'd almost dare say it was creepier than the movie. Entirely
0: possible. Uh, You know, when you get to... uh, A good haunted house like that is kind of an experience unto itself. And they can be a lot of fun. Uh, As far as... uh, I kind of want to segue because... And talk a little bit about this because we've touched on Wes. Even his, his movies that are not... Yeah, and even the ones that aren't necessarily that all that critically successful, the number of times I've watched a Wes Craven movie and not, at the very least, been entertained is extraordinarily low. Uh, I didn't think too much of, and he just produced this one, but the movie They, uh, not a big fan of it, and I thought my soul to take was extraordinarily weak. But other than that, I tend to, at the very least, enjoy it, and he's responsible for a couple of substantial booms in the horror genre. I mean... It, this doesn't get brought up a whole lot you know, unless you guys like you and I are and we just sit around and kind of talk about crap like this but you know uh Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise uh, which came out and again the original Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 84 know, it really kind of revamped it blew, it breathes new life into the slasher genre in a lot of ways I mean, at that point, we were on, you know, a cu- we were a couple of Halloween movies deep. I forget what, I forget precisely which, you know, Friday the 13th we were on at that point, but we're four. well past two. Four. I'm almost, pos-
1: I'm almost positive it's four. The final chapter. The absolute final chapter. For real. For real. Oh,
0: yeah. Final chapter. Except here comes, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, remake, remake again. Ugh. Best status of those things aside. But it, we got, a, again, a character that in Freddy Krueger who was very, very different from the traditional slasher villain to this point. To this point, they were generally not completely voiceless or faceless. I mean, again, you have Michael Myers in the clown mask and Jason famously in the hockey mask. But the slasher villain was presented as just kind of a... Again, it was more about inventive kills than it was Interesting characters, and with *The Nightmare on Elm Street*, Wes completely turned that on its ear. And I mean, Freddy Krueger became a pop culture phenomenon unto himself, and to both good and ill, by and large. As again, we've has has been discussed at length here on various podcasts. But again, you so you go from you know the silent, unkillable force of nature that is Jason Voorhees to Freddy Krueger, who is physically very different. Kills very different. I mean, again, Jason is real and can't die. Freddy Krueger is completely within your own mind. I mean, it, it, they, they couldn't be more different, by and large. And that again created a wave of resurgence in you know, slasher genres and the horror genre specifically. Then, you know, in the you know early you know, the late '90s, when I, I mean the mid '90s the horror genre was in a really bad way. Uh, and I have to recommend listening to The Long Road to Ruin on the Scream franchise uh, that I was also a part of. Yay for more cheap plugs. Uh, but uh, the opening to that particular podcast contains a discussion with me, Mark Radlitz, and Sean Comer about where horror was, again, pre-'96, pre-Scream. And it was a bad, bad place. And then Wes Craven decides that he's going to change the whole. He's going to single handedly almost create a new wave of interest in horror movies and completely revitalizes the entire genre, from from Hollywood's perspective at the very least. And, I mean, it's phenomenal to consider that you know, over a decade after he did it once, he did it again. You know, the. When we talk about Masters of Horror, there's a reason this guy's name keeps popping up, because not a lot of people are even remotely capable of doing what he does when he's on his game. I mean, I can't imagine the state of cinematic horror without Wes Craven. And I can't say that about too many people. There's a few, but... I mean, just without him, imagine what we don't have. It, it's a little bit insane to consider that basically one man did all that.
1: Yeah, and I'd I'd like to um, kind of uh, add a little bit to to what you what you were going uh, what you were going for here. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of that can be credited to you know, uh, Wes Craven was a, he he was a guy that took chances and he made a lot of unconventional choices with uh you know in regards to casting and in regards to the way he he sort of told his stories and i think it it's been said about uh, the casting of of Robert England and how you know you can call it maybe you know maybe there was a little bit of luck involved but i I'd, I'd like to think that there was a lot of vision involved in that too because um Robert England as it, if you put yourself in the mindset of somebody who's trying to make a horror movie and trying to make a slasher movie in around 1983, which was probably when this when the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie was made, if you're trying to come up with a convincing and an intimidating horror movie villain, uh somebody uh who presumably, you know, Robert England was around in his mid 30s at the time, he was uh he was his background is in stage acting. Uh which means and, and if you, if you've ever seen a play live if you've ever seen any kind of stage production uh stage actors rely very heavily on body language uh where their where, where where facial expression may fail them due to having to convey a performance to people who may be too far away to pick up on subtle, you know, expressions of, you know, of the face and and eyes and things like that. Stage actors tend to act a lot with their bodies. So Robert England was somebody who was very very familiar with the concept of creating body language and creating body language uh, to enhance character. And that and and he lent a lot of that to Freddy Krueger. Um I like to think that was intentional on Wes Craven's part that he wanted to create a unique kind of kind of villain because like I said if you put yourself in the in, in the mindset of somebody trying to create a a slasher movie villain during that time your prototype for that is you've got maybe one or two uh Friday the 13th movies that featured Jason Voorhees you've got um Halloween you've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre where these are all if not huge, hulking, you know, silent brutes, they're at least silent brutes, which uh, Freddy is not any, e- either of those things. He kind of broke the mold. He was, you know, he was kind of one of a kind, you know, in in that genre. And that's probably, you know, that can certainly be attributed to why he's endured for so long is because, there, you know, at the time, there was nothing quite like him. Uh, you know the total package of you know Robert England's performance, and then uh, then Craven's direction, and then the you know the effects work, and just the ingenuity of the storytelling, um, and then you know like you said he did it again in Scream, with some unconventional choices, which uh, a lot was made in the first Scream movie, and you know I'm hope I'm not spoiling this near twenty year old movie for anybody, but. Um, <laughs> Uh the you know, the casting and, and sort of the uh putting Drew Barrymore up front as and I, I'm sure you guys mentioned this in, in the in the show previously, but putting Drew Barrymore up front is basically the star of the movie who gets killed before the opening credits start rolling. Um basically playing, you know, the Janet Lee role in Psycho, but it was something that hadn't really hadn't been done like quite like that since then. So we're talking you know almost 35 40 years uh you know to revisit a very you know unconventional uh storytelling you know conven- a, a very uncon- unconventional storytelling choice in and of itself the way hitchcock did it in psycho uh Wes craven kind of reinvented it and and presented it in in scream in that way and then you're kind of off to the races. Now you don't know who's safe. You don't know who's going to make it out alive. You know, it's kind of, you know, all bets are off after that. That's kind of one thing I th- I felt made. The first Scream, and you can say what you want about the sequels. I don't care as much for the sequels as I do for the original. But um, the first Scream I, I considered to be pretty unpredictable and pleasantly so.
0: I would completely agree with you as far as that goes. And again, the sequels have their ups and downs. Uh, I'm not a and Wes Craven directed all of them. I'm not a huge fan of the second Scream. I think it was far too rushed, and I think that is very apparent. Uh, And three is fraught with problems. Four, at least somewhat, returns to kind of the appropriate traditions of the original in a nutshell, my opinion. But, yeah, I mean, again, Drew Barrymore was kind of a big deal in, for those of you who don't remember, or, you know, were a bit, you know, were young in, you know, 1996 when the first Scream came out, Drew Barrymore was kind of a big deal. Uh, She was promoted heavily on the posters, I mean, that's her face front and center on the and the iconic poster, it's her eyes with you know scream written under it, and then everyone else kind of... And she dies in the first ten minutes, uh, violently. And again, I apologize. And like ben, you know, The movie's almost 20 years old. I will not entertain the notion of spoiling something that old. That's on you guys at this point. And it's... Uh, again, it, it's a little bit crazy to kind of consider... How influential he, uh, Wes Craven, was, and uh, like you mentioned, the detail and the choices that he makes. He, I mean, in contemporary filmmaking, the notion of meta films and insert your air quotes around meta. That whole thing starts with Wes Craven. I mean, again, you can. I suppose we can debate, you know, film historians and whatnot. Much like where does found footage start? Where does the slasher genre start? There are Debatable points, but the notion of meta filmmaking, self-referential, self-aware filmmaking, and movies that fall into
1: that—I
0: think that starts and ends basically with Wes Craven. He started with, you know, uh, Wes Craven's *New Nightmare*, the probably the best, objectively speaking, as far as scary sequels to the original *Nightmare on Elm Street* go, and uh, Sean Comer as. You know, uh, has st- has you know made that particular case much more eloquently than I can. So if you've not heard him make that pitch, I'd encourage you to look it up. And and then a lot of the again the meta references that he started with in West in New Nightmare become full bore in the Scream franchise, where yeah, I mean Jamie Kennedy actually discusses the rules of horror, how to survive them. You have interesting kills. In the first Scream movie, I mean, again, Drew Barrymore dies very quickly. Rose McGowan is, uh, I can't say decapitated or even bifurcated, but she is crushed while trying to escape a garage door. Uh, In one of my favorite kills of that entire franchise, you get to watch Matthew Lillard die, and that's always a plus. Uh, He went so far as to cast Geet Ulrich, specifically because he physically resembled Johnny Depp, to kind of further you know, the reference to, the, to uh, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Which, again, the first Nightmare on Elm Street is Johnny Depp's first scre- major movie role, and you know, much as I love Wes Craven, I'm not sure I can ever quite forgive him for that one because now we have more Johnny Depp, and it's it's,
1: uh boy, is that hit or miss. Hey, that that Whitey Bulger movie looks pretty. Looks like it's going to be pretty good. Hopefully, it will be.
0: And I, you'll
1: get oh. this. I mentioned
0: this to someone else, and it went right over their head. But it looks like they put a lot of time and effort into making Johnny Depp look like Brad Dorif, right?
1: Couldn't they have just hired Brad Dorif? Now I'm going to have to go back and look. <laughs>
0: I that was my, that. I, the, the first time I saw the trailer for Black Mass, which is a a biopic about Whitey Bulger, who ran the Irish mob in Boston, for those of you who don't know. It's a forthcoming movie. And it does look pretty good, but I saw it and I thought, hey, is that Brad Dorff? And, no, wait, Black Mass, okay, that's Johnny Depp, they just made him look like kind of contemporary Brad Dorff, and I just went, couldn't you just... (laughs) Why are you going to make Johnny Depp sit in makeup for three hours to make him look like someone who already exists? Another actor who you probably could have hired.
1: Well, they would otherwise have to wait another 30 or 40 years for him to maybe age slightly more. Probably not, so, you know.
0: <laughs> uh, that's very true. Oh,
1: man. Brad Dorf. That
0: guy is... That guy can be creepy. Uh, for those of you who don't know, just real briefly, Brad Dorf is most known for the voice of Chucky uh, from the Child's Play franchise. Uh, and he's done a lot... Honestly, the most the thing I most remember him for from a live-action perspective is there's an episode of Season 8 or 9 of Criminal Minds, I can't remember which one, that features him turning people into human marionettes. And that guy is scary when he wants to be. I'll just leave it at that.
1: I'd also recommend um, Exorcist 3. He's in that, and he's really creepy in that, too.
0: Oh, yeah, Exorcist 3 has probably the best jump scare in, you know, horror movie history. Uh, to kind of put an end to that particular, as uh, Jason Teasley calls them, rabbit holes, you know, sidebars. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, you know, if you personally, you know, again, kind of gun to your head, What's your? You know, do you have a favorite, uh, you know, Wes Craven movie, uh, television show that he's been a part of or whatnot that... Uh, n- and Kind of passing over the big ones, do you have a maybe an overlooked classic of his, something that you want to bring up here that you think might not get enough attention in other forums that are going to discuss you know, Wes Craven in the wake of his passing?
1: Uh, it's been so long since I've seen some of them. I know he, he directed the ill-fated Swamp Thing movie in 82, like pre-Nightmare on Elm Street. Um... I'd, uh... Oh, that's
0: not a—that's not a bad movie. Uh, I, I'm not gonna lie. I've seen that. It yeah uh, yeah. It came out in 1982. It's it's not bad. You can see kind of parts of what's gonna. I mean again, Swamp Thing is actually a very interesting character for those of you familiar with his source material. Uh, if you're a child of the 80s like I am, you might remember kind of the ill-fated and heavily children-advertised cartoons that he was a part of that did the character right. absolutely no justice. But no, that's not a bad one. That's a. There are some real moments in that movie that are pretty darn good. Uh, overall, it suffers a bit.
1: If, um... I don't know, uh... Aside from, from the big and, and well-known and well-covered ones, um, like I said, I remember the ones that are, you know, um, I remember the ones that are that are not as good, but still relatively entertaining. We haven't talked about Shocker yet, also because I haven't brushed up on that one, but I remember that one being pretty batshit insane, too.
0: Uh, I'm a sucker for Mitch Pelleggi, Uh so I'll See a lot of the stuff that he's involved in. Just uh, he's one of my, you know, he's one of those working actors that I've got kind of a soft spot for. Probably because I grew up on the X Files and uh, yeah. Again, I, so that is another <laughs> random association. But now Shocker is a little bit crazy. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, have you seen Red Eye? And do you have any thoughts on that one? Because I've got a. Uh, that's one I want to specifically talk about in a minute or two here, and I'm so I'm curious as to if you have any thoughts on that one.
1: I honestly, I honestly did not like Red Eye very much, um, which is disappointing because I like everybody that's in it. I like Killian Murphy. Uh, I normally am, you know, in awe of uh, anytime Rachel McAdams is on my TV screen. Uh, yep, Brian Cox is in it uh, for a few minutes. He's sitting in a he's sitting in a comfy chair most of the, for most of that movie. Which uh, is not it. a bad
0: gig if you can get it.
1: Sure, why not? <laughs> I didn't. Uh, it didn't really do it for me. I won't say that it didn't feel like a Wes Craven movie. It felt like it just kind of felt like a subpar Wes craven movie for me it felt like um you know i i give him credit for trying to do something something different something that's not straight out blood and gore or horror he tried to do something more and and this is another instance where you can see you can see a little bit of the of the uh hitchcock ref uh um and stanley kubrick also uh influence in in his style uh, he tried to do this sort of taut, you know, thriller where it's just uh, it's very intimate and it's basically two people sitting next to each other on an airplane. Um, I guess it, I guess it's the the ending is where it all kind of fell apart for me, or maybe right around the time that uh, Killian Murphy got stabbed in the neck.
0: Uh, that was, that's kind of the turning point, I think, which is sad, because he actually gets this really cool kind of evil voice after he gets stabbed in the neck, but. Uh, I, my issues with Red Eye, and any of Wes's kind of lesser movies, I think can be summed up with the following sentiment, at the very least. They're usually interesting ideas that tend to fall down in the execution. Uh, again, the flip side is there's probably a few, and I'm not intimately familiar with his entire filmography, so I apologize if this is completely wrong. But some of the other stuff I've seen is kind of the reverse. It's a, 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 not a mediocre idea, but a rather common idea with spectacular execution that elevates it above a similar fare.
1: I agree with that.
0: And as far as Egg and Red, I, I, I'm. I, Killian Murphy. I liked the guy for a long time, uh, again, Red Eye, uh, his stuff as the crow in the Nolan Batman trilogy, in the Dark Knight trilogy, is Scarecrow. fun, and it's a, it's a credit to him that he's able to pull that off so well. Then I actually saw Peaky Blinders, uh, the television series, and I am a fan of that man for life now. It, what he's able to do in that series is phenomenal, it, it, legitimately. And him squaring off with Sam Neill, Sam Neill doing an Irish accent, there's nothing to go, there's there's no weakness to that series at the moment, I think. Although the upcoming one is going to see whether or not they're going to jump the shark. Uh, we haven't quite done it yet, but I think we're we're nudging up on it, so I'm worried about the next season. But other than that, it's been phenomenal. And uh, again, with Red Eye, it's just an issue of execution. Again, the ending—I'm uh, with you there. It just there's so much goodness. There's such there's some really good tense sequences. There's some great interactions between Murphy and Rachel McAdams, and it just it kind of falls apart at the end, which is very sad because there's a lot of really good stuff that went into that movie.
1: I think we can also take this time to talk about the other movie that. Wes Craven made in
0: 2005.
1: Oh, uh, let's... Wait, it. Which was Cursed. Uh, yeah, I was... Here, Here's what That's I want not... to say about... Here, here's what I want to say ahead. about Cursed. Not a good movie. Uh, I don't blame Wes Craven for this movie. I think he was trying his damnedest. Um... For for those who don't know, this movie Curse was written by Kevin Williamson, who also wrote, uh, I believe, at least the first Scream movie. I don't remember if he wrote also wrote the second. Uh, Kevin Williamson was also a writer for Dawson's Creek. Um, I don't remember if he created the show or not. I can't remember. I can't be bothered to remember. Um, Kevin he Williamson. It. Did he? Okay. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> Kevin Williamson is the type of writer where if you don't rein him in, he will his writing will run amuck all over your movie. In the first Scream movie, Wes Craven kept him on a very tight leash and all of the things, you know, those those things that actually work about the style that Kevin Williamson usually employs in his writing, the sort of, you know, the teen snark, the endless pop culture references, the endless parade of pop culture references. Can and we just Scream, be grateful that
0: Williamson and Whedon have never collaborated?
1: Yeah, but see, Whedon actually knows when to stop. Uh, that's why I'm grateful part. they've never
0: collaborated.
1: Yeah. Also, Whedon doesn't take crap from writers, so... Um, but, uh... Also true. <laughs> yeah. Um... Scream was very much, uh... Wes Craven bringing out the best in, uh, Kevin Williamson and them putting together, you know, coming together for something that was, that was, you know, interesting and, and well-made and well, and, and for the most part, well-written and very well-executed, uh, you know, and, and visually, uh, which has never been a problem of Wes Craven's, uh, visually interesting and visually arresting. Cursed. Was much more of a Kevin Williamson movie than it was a Wes Craven movie. This is what happens when uh, when a good director is forced to direct crappy material. Um, they had all kinds of, you know, they had they had a decent cast at their disposal. They had uh, a lot of people in yeah. really really. It weird depends roles. on how
0: highly you feel about Jesse Eisenberg. And
1: not not very, but I'm talking about uh, I'm I'm talking about a couple of other people. Um, for whatever reason, they tried to pull the exact same thing with Shannon and Elizabeth uh, at the beginning of the movie that they did with Drew Barrymore in Scream, and this time it didn't work at all. Uh, where she was kind of heavily featured, and she was kind of on a, on an upswing career-wise, and then she ends up getting you know getting slaughtered by a werewolf uh, in short fashion. I think she's on screen for maybe all of. Five to ten minutes. Um, it's and it it kind of goes downhill from there. It's unfortunate because um, I I remember when this movie first came out in in, uh, in two thousand five, and I, it was you know by that point I was well aware of who Wes Craven was and what he was about, and I hear Wes Craven's making a werewolf movie. Now, that is all you need to tell me to sell me on watching that movie. Wes Craven is going to make a werewolf movie. And personally, I don't think, you know, I think with, you know, some people probably argue with me, uh, but, you know, the last really great werewolf movie was, you know, was both The Howling and American Werewolf in London. That was in 1981. And that that statement still stands as my opinion to this day. I was hoping Curse uh, was gonna be was gonna be up the there. The only
0: thing I'd recommend that might challenge that is if you haven't seen Dog Soldiers and you don't mind Scottish accents, I'd say look that one up. That one I would place in that I've, kind of pantheon.
1: I've heard. I've been meaning to see it. I've I hear fifty fifty on Dog Soldiers. Uh that's the only one that I, I've heard that anyone that even comes close to anybody praising is as a werewolf movie on the level of, you know, those two from eighty one. Uh that was unfortunate, and I honestly don't want to end this show on a downer on you know on one of on a lesser West Craven movie. But I would have liked to see what a you know what a less you know Hollywood eyes Kevin Williamson might have come up with for West Craven to direct as far as this movie, or just somebody else entirely, because uh, you know West Craven doing a vamp, doing um. Uh, werewolf movie was something that really, really appealed to me and I was unfortunately pretty disappointed by it and I don't blame him for that. It was just kind of unfortunate that uh the script kinda ate him. Yeah, that happens sometimes.
0: Uh I don't know. We're not we're most certainly not gonna end on a downer. There's like again, there's a couple of things that I have that I'm really kinda hoping again, I like ending these things at least on a somewhat positive note, or at at the very least a nostalgic or bittersweet one, and I've got something uh, again, I have kind of my outro planned for this one, but uh, there's something I want to touch on as far as uh, Wes Craven's earlier stuff, and I mentioned uh, well okay, uh, this leads into a slightly larger discussion that I want, that I'm going to have to curtail a bit, but I'm curious for your perspective, because I have mine as far as this goes, but Wes Craven made a few movies that have been remade, uh, in no small part because they were very successful, but the two I want to focus on for this are uh, The Hills Have Eyes and The Last House on the Left, which were two of his earlier movies. I believe The Last House on the Left was his first movie, and then The Hills Have Eyes was his second. That might be reversed. I'm going to double-check that now, lest I look completely foolish. Uh, Last House on the Left was first, Hills Have Eyes was second. Okay. I feel less foolish now. And they um Because my perspective on these movies, especially the remakes... Uh, first of all, the Hills Have Eyes remake is... Hand on a Stack of Bibles, one of the most laughably bad horror movies I've ever seen.
1: Oh, I actually like that movie.
0: <laughs> and and And... May, and People see movies differently than I do. For me, there's one scene in this movie that just slapped me in the face and took me completely out of it. That's where one of the characters ambushes one of the inbred cannibals who's stalking them with a baseball bat. Inbred cannibal is carrying a shotgun. They render inbred cannibal unconscious, drop the bat, which they use to render them unconscious, and then leave a perfectly good loaded shotgun laying next to the temporarily unconscious cannibal.
1: How do you not
0: grab the shotgun before you leave that room. I it it was
1: symbolism again, he was scared <laughs> maybe it,
0: it's just one of those things that takes me out of movies when people act that at the very least he should have held on to the bat
1: all right that's at the very least i thought it was weird, like the the only the only Part, and this wasn't even an objectionable part of that remake. It was just something that I noticed that stood out to me like a sore thumb, just because um, if you've seen the movie, if you, uh, this is going to, I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. But if you've ever seen uh, Tony Scott's uh, movie True Romance, I don't know if you have you seen that before, Robert?
0: I can't say that I have
1: can't recommend it enough, written by Quentin Tarantino cast to die for, it. it's a great, great, great movie but aside from that, there's a scene without giving too much away from that movie because I legitimately don't want to spoil it because it's really good and everybody should watch it uh, there's a scene in that movie where uh, the main, uh, the, the female lead played by Patricia Arquette is confronted by, um, by James Gandolfini who is uh, playing a mob guy, if you can believe it Um... No. (laughs) He's good in the movie, though. And there's this just brutal fight that you knock knock down, drag out, fight between the two of them. And, um... There's there's a part where... uh, Patricia Arquette, beaten half to death, is threatening to stab James Gandolfini with a corkscrew. And he kind of, like, thinks it, you know, he thinks it's funny, and he's, you know, kind of toying with her, and he basically says, you know, you know, I'm going to give you a free shot, you know, you know, do your worst, and she stabs him in the foot. If you remember the Hills Have Eyes remake, that scene plays out almost exactly the same way between, between, you know, whoever the guys that played the male lead and the gigantic mongoloid, you know, seven-foot-tall, like, you know, you know, Monstrous uh, mutant. That exact same scene plays out. I was laughing my ass off because all I could think of with that was that scene in True Romance. I don't know if that's intentional right. or not. I don't know if that was tribute. I don't know what that. I don't know what that was about, but it made me laugh. It seems, uh, if your description
0: is accurate, and I'll give you all kinds of credit for that. That seems way too direct to be incidental. So.
1: You remember that scene in the remake though, right? Do you do you remember what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, yeah, I do.
1: Yeah. Oh man. Now go watch True Romance. You'll you'll laugh at that too.
0: Alright. I I can always use a good laugh. Uh I I wanna again I wanted to bring this up specifically, uh, referencing Last House on the Left and a lot of I feel like a lot of the And again, I don't want to have this huge discussion here because there is a long discussion about how Hollywood and those who try to make movies in the, forgive the phrase, torture porn genre, have remade badly a bunch of exploitation movies from the 60s and 70s while completely, all they do is up the violence and gore and completely miss a lot of the point behind them, the interesting character interactions and things along those lines. And with The Last House on the left, I feel that was one of the more egregious examples, because, and I have to pimp another documentary that I saw on Netflix. What was it? I think it was uh, Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue. It's maybe two hours long, just kind of a documentary about American-style horror movies. And, of course, they interviewed Wes Craven for this, and he talks about the original Last House on the left and having you know, having seen it and listening to him talk about it, there's again, and this is one of the things that I have to say as we're kind of winding down here. I have to get into this a little bit. That everything he does is a very is very thoughtful by and large. And again, even you know, forgiving the movies of his that are just kind of like you know yeesh, and the, there are a few. Uh, he talks specifically about. The use of violence in the, uh, the famous scenes from the original *Last House on the Left*, the you know rape and murder of the uh, of the daughter, and how there's a couple of scenes at the end of that, at the end of that sequence, where the you know, the violent offenders are left shocked, a little bit dazed, and moderately horrified by what they've actually done, and the the effect they, I mean, you've just witnessed this horrific crime. And now, these people are very much affected by this. These aren't mindless sociopaths. These are, I mean, again, they're disturbed people, clearly, but they're not unfeeling. And uh, you—and know, you, he talks about how he kind of juxtaposed that with, at the end, after the parents of the, you know, murdered girl get revenge, and violently get revenge on this pack of, you know, and delinquents, and that's not necessarily the correct word, but it'll do for the purposes of this discussion, that despite all of this, you know, violence that they've done, they're still left alone without closure and still without their daughter, and it's, I mean when you listen to him talk about it, it's very much a, an interesting kind of thought process behind how, you know, senseless revenge violence really is, and it's that kind of thoughtfulness that he was able to put into all of his movies. And that, and again, that attention to detail, the kind of thoughtfulness, the psychology behind what he did, I think that's one of kind of his lasting legacies as a filmmaker. Is Like you mentioned, he wasn't a guy who just tried to scare you by showing you stuff. You know, anybody can do that. He wanted to know why it scared you, and he didn't want to scare you in the theater... He wanted to scare you, you know. Two weeks later, when you hear something go bump in the night, and that's again, that's kind of his. I feel one of his lasting legacies is thoughtful, intelligent filmmaking, no matter the subject material. And I'm so I'll give you kind of the last word. Is there anything, any final thoughts on his legacy as a filmmaker, uh, or what he's contributed to, especially again the horror genre where he kind of made his bread and butter? Anything final that you kind of want to say there before we wrap up and sign off? I
1: I'd, I I'd, uh, you know, in parting I would I would say Wes Craven's lasting legacy as as a filmmaker and as somebody who was uh, who really grasped what horror was about and what it what it can do to a person and how how it can affect people. Wes Craven, it would it seems, you know, you look back at a lot of his a lot especially his, his earlier work and you've got, you know, the the Hills Have Eyes and, and uh Last House on the Left and leading up to Night Run Elm Street. Wes Craven invaded your personal space. Wes Craven try West Craven was not content to make you afraid of things that you knew realistically couldn't happen or couldn't uh, that that you couldn't relate to he would make he would turn those things on its head you know nightmare on Elm street being the best example of that but he invaded your per- he invaded your your personal space he invaded places where you thought you'd be safe with last house on the left it was you know it was suburbia and it was the idea of you know idyllic you know family life of that time and he invaded that and he made that horrifying uh you know Last House on the Left, it was, you know, it was about, you know, a, you know survival instinct and, and how far you could push a human being to survive uh, against, you know, these terrifying circumstances. And, of course, in, you know, in Nightmare on Elm Street, he invaded your dreams. He invaded the one place where you would think that, you, you know, you, could, you would be safe. You could, uh, you'd be safe from any, any external threat. And he made that terrifying and there was no going back from that. And he's uh, on many occasions, I think he's specifically in Never Sleep Again, he said, you know, that's that's kind of the most the most intimate violation and the most egregious and the most horrifying violation is you know, is somebody that's able to violate you in your dreams, in your subconscious, in your mind. Uh he was he was somebody that like I said, he knew he wanted to know what scared you and why. And he also wanted to experiment with what sacred places he could he could instill fear into. Uh you know, to a lesser extent I guess you could say, you know, Scream did that for, you know, people's love of, of movies and, and the conventions of that. And he turned that on its ear and now, you know, suddenly you weren't, uh, you know, he was using all of these things that you had grown up to love and now he was using it against you. And now you've got a killer who's basically living out of a a slasher movie. So he was very good at that. He was very good at taking something that you, you would never think could be terrifying and make it terrifying. Uh,
0: Yeah, I agree. And again, uh, I've mentioned this on many different podcasts, uh, but whenever I kind of qualify and quantify horror movies, I go back to Stephen King's three basic tiers uh, as far as what it aims to do that he laid down in uh, his book, Dance Macabre. You have the highest level is terror, which extends beyond just what you watch. It gets into your brain, and it scares you for days, weeks, months, years. You have horror, which is still scary, but is a bit more momentary. And then you have gross-out effects, which is just designed to inst- to you know initiate a visceral reaction. And to his eternal credit, I think Wes Craven was able to do all three of those, depending on what he wanted to do for any given movie or any given scene. And I have to, because I don't want to close on a downer note, I have, uh, this actually was somewhat inspired by you, Ben, because uh, earlier this year, and we've mentioned, this year has sucked for you know, losing high-profile people. We've lost a couple of very prominent wrestlers, uh, actors, directors. Now, it's it's been a rough year, but... You mentioned that, since we found out about Christopher Lee and Dusty Rhodes passing away on the same day, that you tended to think that uh, Sir Christopher Lee was working on a metal version of Common Man uh, for Dusty Rhodes. I'm a little bit... I need to mention this to specifically here, because I fantasy-casted this just a little bit. To Bruce Campbell. Sir, please be careful. Because we now have a horror master in Wes Craven a true icon of horror in Christopher Lee, and a solid, I imagine what would be one half of an everyman kind of black comedic duo in Roddy Piper up there. And if I'm fantasy casting a genre movie that deals with you know, Supreme Evil and the men who fight it, you've got Christopher Lee as the Supreme Evil, and you've got Roddy Piper and Bruce Campbell as your kind of... Wise cracking, every man fighting it. So, Bruce Campbell, please look both ways before crossing the street.
1: I had to mute my microphone. Very... I had to mute my mic a minute <laughs> there because I was marking out for that. That was that was pretty. Good. <laughs> well played, <laughs> sir.
0: Uh, all right. And again, thankfully, uh, on that note, and I really regret that we're never going to actually see that movie because. And again, I haven't written it, you know, theoretically even in my own head, but y- y- that would be all kinds of awesome. On that note, I think we're going to wrap up shop here. Uh, ben, anything you want to plug before we... I'm going to play Docking again, and we're going to go out to that. So,
1: anything you want to plug? Anything you, you need to get out of the way? A uh, couple of things real quick. Uh, you know, uh, as you said before, uh, I, as always as ever, I write Draw self-publish a comic called Soul Exodus, um, which I will actually be exhibiting at New York Comic Con next month, uh, October 8th through 11th. Uh, It's a hard ticket to get. It's a hard place to get into. But if you happen to be, you know, some one of the chosen few who's able to attend. Uh, check me out at New York Comic Con and you can check out my website uh, solexo.com, facebook.com slash solexo uh, twitter at solexo comic for information about where I'll be in the convention center Um, to extend that I'm actually also I have actually also just finished uh, working on my part for uh, Louis Lovehog aka Linkara And his Atop the Fourth Wall movie, which should be out possibly in the month of October, if all goes well. Fingers crossed. Um, I actually wrote and drew a 10-page comic, which will be in some way featured in the Atop the Fourth Wall movie. And the good news is, and I'm announcing it here first, I'm going to have copies, some limited copies to sell at New York Comic Con. So I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited to see, uh, you know, how, what people think of the comic. And uh, it was a blast working with Lewis. So check out his website as well at uh, topthefourthwall.com.
0: All right. Real briefly for my part, this coming Saturday, I will have live coverage of UFC 191 over at 411mania.com in the MMA section. Should be a good card. My Probably my favorite active fighter, Uh Demetrius Johnson, flyweight champion, is going to defend the belt. Uh, in that same vein, because I always write about Demetrius Johnson before he fights, I haven't written a standalone piece for a while, For quite a while, I'm I don't know exactly why. I imagine part of it's I've spent the last little bit helping my dad move. I've not been inspired, and uh, that's a weak excuse, I'm very well aware of that, if you're uh, serious about writing or any art form, inspiration is a benefit, it's a fringe benefit, not the golden, you know, it's not what you need, it's a nice benefit, but I will have something up about Demetrius Johnson and the impressive run he's been on, how he's closing in on some pretty substantial milestones from a, you know, for those of you who are fans of statistics, He's got some good some big ones coming up, especially if he beats John Dodson and uh my prediction is that he will. So, take that for what it's worth. Uh as well, you can find me every Sunday uh hosting the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. This Sunday we'll be reviewing UFC 191. I think we're taking the week after that off. There's only a couple of UFC events this entire month and that's what we're primarily focused on. So, uh but again, if major news breaks or something like that then Uh, That will be the normal time for the show. More updates as they become available. I've still got to hash out the exact schedule for this month. And every Friday you can find me, well, most Fridays, I can't say every Friday anymore. You can find me hosting my podcast here on the Red Legend Broadcasting Network, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Uh, I will have something this week. I've, uh, I might do a specific retrospective on West Craven's career I might uh, something along those lines if nothing else speaks to me so be on the lookout for that it goes live Fridays at 9pm Eastern Standard Time alright Ben thank you for being here because one guy just yakking to himself for 60 minutes is exponentially less interesting than sharing a conversation and Thanks on that, that note we're done here uh, so we're going out to docking again thank you everyone for being here uh Hopefully it'll be a while before we have to do one of these somewhat, you know, retrospectives of people who have passed away. So everyone out there, we always, we say it here when we sign off, but please be well, be safe, and behave.
1: Sweet dreams.